of the Rex Snap. Yeah. I'm Emery Hunt, the czar of the playbook, uh, and this is episode 14 of yeah. Direct Snap. I know it's been a while since I've done one of these podcasts. I've been guest on other podcasts, other radio shows. We've done Scout Team Podcast, which is new to our football game plan podcast network, but it's been a while since I've done a Direct Snap podcast, and I'm glad to be back and give you guys some good insight on a lot of things that have happened, that has happened in the National Football League and college football and just football in general. So, as always, you can follow me on Twitter at FBall Game Plan. Be sure to follow us on iTunes, Football Game Plan Podcast. Subscribe there. Give us a five-star rating. I guess that's the thing to do. Ask for five-star ratings. I didn't even know that was a thing. But make sure you give us a five-star rating and give other guys five-star ratings or rate as you see fit. But you know we do great work over here. Don't forget to check out and subscribe to our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash footballgameplan. Follow us on Twitter at FBGP Scouting, at Gene Clemens, at CJ Florida 9, at T Davenport underscore NFL. All of our analysts there. You can follow us on Twitter and also become a fan of ours on Facebook as well. Just search Football Game Plan. And if you miss any one of our podcasts and you don't want to subscribe on iTunes, you can find all of our podcasts archived on our website at footballgameplan.com slash podcast, or you can check us out on SoundCloud at soundcloud.com slash FBGP podcast with an S at the end. So that's where you can find all of our podcasts uh, archived online, again, on iTunes and things of that nature. But we got a lot of things to discuss today, man. And just to jump right into it, first of all, I'm upset. We put a poll up last night. Uh, asking guys about the best football player that had sneakers, a signature shoe, because that's on the hill of the heels of Odell Beckham Jr. getting that five million dollar a year contract from Nike, which is outstanding. Um, because normally you see basketball players get this type of endorsement deal because they are the ones that are constantly wearing sneakers, and we remember a time when football players had those signature shoes, and they had some great ones and. I put up a poll on Twitter, which football player had the best signature shoe, Bo Jackson, uh, Deion Sanders, Barry Sanders, or Junior Seau. And I'm just appalled that there's not a lot of love for the Junior Seau sneaker. It just amazes me. That that was the first shoe, I believe. Uh, Maybe it was Deion's. Deion Sanders' shoe was the first one. But Seau had that strap. And, you know, I still remember that commercial, that Nike commercial, and, and the first ones to come out were the black sneakers with the blue check uh, with it, encased in the white circle. It was just a, an amazing shoe. But we haven't seen great sneakers nowadays. I, I think now, and it's sad, I, I hate to sound like an old guy. I'll be 36 years old at the end of, at the, end of the month. Uh, but I do sound like an old guy when I say a lot of stuff is just whack right now. Sneakers are whack. Uh, rap music nowadays is whack. That's why you see a lot of sneakers just come back. With retros, I'm still wearing a pair of Air Mac 95s. You know what I'm saying? And I remember when they came out initially, they were still the same price. Quite honestly, they were 150 back in '95, and they're still 150 today. But that shows you two things: one, how great things were back then; how much time people put into uh, their craft and making a great shoe, and how terrible it is nowadays. And we see that across many spectrums from music. Rap and R&B. Television is terrible. And since this is a football podcast, football analysis has become terrible. You know, and we're going to start that discussion. Oh, by the way, you can still go and vote on Twitter uh, for this poll. Right now, Bo Jackson is leading with 45%. That's a great choice because that's a shoe. Uh, Once they start to unveil many different colors, and we saw this back when they first came out, like 89, um, Team specific colors. That's back when East Bay was popular. Uh, the the magazine, you know, so you had team specific Bo Jacksons, which was awesome. Um, I had a pair of the the blue and gray ones, the original ones. I had a pair of the white and gray, and a pair of the orange and gray ones. They were also in the red and black ones too. I got later on when I was in college. Again, that shoe came out in '89. You start to see them slowly re-release them 
in the early 2000s. So this was 99, 2000 when I had a pair of the red and black and green. Because obviously as a Raging Cajun, we were red, black, and white. I'm sorry, vermilion, black, and white. So Bo Jackson is leading. I'm not surprised there. Deion Sanders. And there were two set, three sets of Deion Sanders shoes. There was the ones that initially came out with the that looked like uh, the Air Raids. So those were, were dope with the gold uh, lightning bolt on the back. Then you had the ones that came out with the shark fins. I think that was the, maybe the third ones that came out when he went to Dallas. Or maybe that was right before Dallas. But I know he had the, the one with the strap that sort of looked like the Junior Seau's. Uh All three of his sneakers were awesome. So I'm not surprised. Barry, I'm surprised that low is this low with 11%. Because, again, with the grip at the bottom, the turf shoes, they were awesome. That was something that was unique at the time. And I actually wore a pair in a game in high school. Um, I had the black and white ones. The original ones was the ones that, that were the Lions colors, the, the silver and blue, which were awesome. Then they started to make team-specific ones. And those back in the day, you couldn't get those. I remember Terrell Owens had one with the 49ers, and, and those were amazing with the gold, uh, the the dark red, the burgundy, uh, and the black. I was like, man, those shoes are, are awesome, and they were team-specific. The Dolphins ones were awesome, too. But Barry Sanders' shoe is at 11%. I'm shocked by that. And some's that, some ones that didn't make the list, that didn't make the cut, they were awesome shoes. The Rob Woodson's were, were very popular growing up. The Marshall Falk shoes were popular. Uh, Reggie White's shoe was very popular. And those are some more that were signature shoes where you saw uh, team-specific colors. You saw the 49ers have some. The Green Bay ones were obviously a, a good-looking one, despite it being green and gold. You could rock those with a lot of different things. Uh, but those team-specific shoes were, were hot. Those were Reggie White sneakers, by the way. But the ones that are that should have made the list, if I was able to add a fifth one, it would have been those Damarinos. Those were some awesome-ass shoes, especially the Dolphins colors, the teal and orange with a little bit of black sprinkled in with a strap. Come on, man. Those, those are some awesome shoes. Those are Nike Airspeed Turf Max. So go look at those and tell me what you think. Those those were some awesome shoes. But continue to vote on Twitter. Uh, you'll see the poll up there right now. I, I'm, again, highly disappointed at the lack of Junior Seau sneaker love those were some great sneakers guys and they were all active cross trainers you know who had some whack sneakers for a football player emma smith sneakers were whack and i hated that they were whack because a lot of teams started to make them uh first of all they were reebok and reebok at the time were, were whack uh, and a lot of teams made them into cleats and team specific cleats that we had to wear it's like yo these are terrible cleats um but if you know who had the best sneaker, and I'm getting off on a tangent, but you know who had the best sneaker? Uh, the, the King Griffies. Those sneakers were awesome. Those were the best ones. I had never seen a pair of sneakers that had everything that you want. You know, sort of a high top, a little bit less than a than a high top, but just a little bit more than mid-quarter. They had an air bubble. They had cool colors. Um, there was a lot going on at the 24 on the strap at the top on the, the side strap, but it was amazing uh, to look at. And it was an amazing sneaker too. They were heavy though. I mean, you couldn't, you couldn't run in those sneakers, you, you know, just like you couldn't run as good as those Barry Sanders were as awesome as they were. They were heavy. Um, the Bo Jacksons were like to run in uh, the Dion cause they were cross trainers. The Deion Sanders would like to run in the sales were kind of heavy too. Um, but those, those uh, Marinos were like the perfect fit cause they fit your, your foot perfectly they were light but they were secure it was just amazing sneaker but those king griffies were awesome probably the best sneakers i've seen come out of nike and, and since those air mac 95s which they still make today which i am wearing a pair of now um i'm wearing a pair of the 95s and i have five different colors of the air mac 90s so again big air mac guy um those are some 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 outstanding sneakers they're they're multi they're light they're they're good on your feet as far as like if you want to run in them um and actually do what you're supposed to do in the sneaker that's the one thing <laughs> unique a lot of times you get basketball shoes with no intentions of playing basketball in them that's just how we roll so uh go vote on that poll on twitter um the best football sneaker uh to come out
A bit of news and notes coming from the NFL. The most recent one, the one that I want to talk about that's uh, you know important to me or one that I thought that was a good one was the the new cutdown rule. So NFL teams now will go from 90 to 53 and eliminate the 75 limit cut rule, which I just think is awesome. If you're going to bring 90 guys to camp, you know, at the end of the day, you kind of know which guys are, are going to make the team, and you want to give these guys, do them a solid by allowing them to play in preseason games. So I'm the one, I'm one of the few that thinks that all preseason games matter. And we talked about this on this podcast before. So I love the four preseason or five preseason games because you give those guys on the back end of the roster, those, those other 45 guys um, to get out there, put tape together, live game reps. You can't fake live in practice. The only way you get better by playing football is actually playing football. And those preseason games matter to those guys that's, you know, third or fourth on the depth chart, sometimes fifth and sixth on the depth chart. You get more reps on special teams. Uh, you get more opportunity to put together a reel to show other teams. Uh, and it's tough when you have that 75-player cut because sometimes the guys that get cut in the, with the 75-player cut doesn't necessarily – don't ever get that opportunity to play in a game. You know, a prime example, the, the Atlanta Falcons had a quarterback that I really like a couple seasons ago, uh, and Jeff Matthews out of Cornell, who's now up with the – who signed a free agent contract uh, this offseason with the Toronto Argonauts. He's going to compete for the starting job. He should beat out Ricky Ray. Um, but they love Ricky Ray up there. He's the CFL's version of Matt Schaub. You expect him to retire, but somehow, some way, he's still on the roster and still getting starting uh, reps. Uh, but Jeff Matthews, 6'4", 225, rocking arm, uh, just didn't – get the opportunity with the Falcons. He threw two passes in a preseason game, completed one. So he was one out of two, and the next day he got cut. Uh, and it was the first cut. And it was like, man, that's – and he bounced around to some practice squads. He was with the Colts, and he ended up in Canada and playing with the Hamilton Tiger Cats, and now he's with the Toronto Argonauts with a chance to go and start. And he was starting with Hamilton before he suffered a concussion um, and actually played quite well. But – for that guy to, to get cut after a preseason game when he didn't really get a chance to show what he can do, you know, two pass attempts in the last two minutes of the fourth quarter of a preseason game is not enough reps to show other teams what you can do. Granted, they can go to your college tape and go off that, but you want to put together some some tape in the NFL of actually playing against other NFL-level competition. Um, so allowing this cut to go all the way down to the last cut which is to my, in my opinion, is great because I'm one of the few that watches all the preseason games. Or, you know, I don't care if I don't just sit there and wait for the starters and turn it off. I want to see how these rookie players or, or first year guys that were on the roster last year get out there and compete in the game. And I find it fascinating that people that cover the, the NFL draft and cover prospects all season long, college football prospects all season long all of a sudden don't give a shit about the preseason game. Like what, That's your work. That's when you watch the guys that you've greeted all year long. You spent six months, seven months talking about, you know, backup defensive tackle from Michigan State, and now backup defensive tackle from Michigan State is playing in a preseason game in the fourth quarter, and you talk about many to cut the preseason down to one game and just play starters. Like, no, stupid. You want to see your player get out there and compete and prove you right or wrong in your critique or analysis of his game based off the six months you watched him in college. So I don't understand when, when draft Knicks say that about the preseason, that if anything, they should be championing the preseason game and want to see more backups play. Because that's the guys that you've spent all that time scouting. So, and I don't have an issue with them waiting until the last cut to cut down to 53. And again, they're going to be cutting down guys to that 53 number anyway. It's not going to be one massive, you know, cut to drop 47 or 37 players on the same day. I, I think you'll see guys slowly get cut throughout the process. They're going to still probably have an informal. 90-day cut and still bring in some guys. So you're going to see them cut guys, bring in more guys. I think it will create more opportunities um, for players. Even if you get cut initially after what used to be the 75-player cut, they're going to bring in some guy to fill that roster spot. They're probably going to keep 90-man rosters, but the amount of moving and shaking within that 90 up until that 53 
will be just as constant and fluid as we've seen it before. So I actually think it's a good thing. It gives more guys opportunities or gives guys longer opportunities to, to make their case for making a 53 or making the 65, I think it is, with the practice squad, or just putting together some more film for other teams to check them out. So I think it's a great thing. I, I don't have a problem with it. Um, you know, it's it's going to – there's no downside in, in creating opportunities. I mean, and it's not like the NFL doesn't have the money, if we're being honest, to make the roster 75. You know, bring 90 to camp, cut – down to 75 and and that's your 75 man roster make 65 eligible on game day i'm talking about dressed and active ready to play and you have your practice squad to me that that's your there's your developmental league nfl it's you know 90 man rosters 53 or 60 make the roster 60 are active the 30 guys are your developmental guys your practice squads they can scrimmage other players or other teams uh during the week how about that there's your there's your development. They're getting pro level development. They're still on your team. They're still learning your system. There you have it. It's almost like J- varsity and JV. So it's not that hard. They just don't want to do it. You know, they got to figure out how to, a way to make money. But you got to find ways to quote unquote develop your players. And that's the other thing. You know, the whole myth of developing. Uh, let's be honest. You kind of are what you are in the NFL at this point. You know, once you leave college. There's, you know what? I take that back. I'm not gonna say all development is is fake. I will say this though, you know, I think the most development that takes place happens along the offensive line, because you don't get the chance as an offensive lineman to consistently go up against grown men that are technically sound, that are a little bit stronger, or at the same strength as you in college. This is a part people don't understand. Um, there are no 18-year-olds in the NFL. There are, there are no 19-year-old defensive ends um, that your 21, 22-year-old senior is able to manhandle. You know, those are some things that people don't understand about the NFL level. Skill positions you can get away with because fast is fast, athletic is athletic, agile is agile. But up front, I think that's the biggest development. And people talk about the offensive line being uh, terrible, offensive line being terrible, terrible coming out of college. Uh, there are no good offensive linemen. They're not being coached well. Here's an opportunity to, to get guys developing up to speed. So for me, that's why I hold the, the, the mindset. I don't necessarily would – I wouldn't necessarily draft an offensive lineman high unless they're Orlando Pace. And, I mean, when you watch Pace film in, at Ohio State, Clearly, I mean, if you're an offensive lineman that's consistently putting guys in the ground, not on the ground, but in the ground, yeah, that's the offensive lineman you take high. You know, if you're running down the field 60 yards on a screen and, and you're helping lead the, the cavalry downfield, yeah, that's the offensive lineman you take high. If you're Jonathan Ogden, you're 6'9", 330, but move like you're a scat back and still are able to put people in the ground, yes, that's the offensive lineman you take high. But a guy that played at Texas A&M in a spread offense with a mobile quarterback that de- that forces defensive ends not to rush aggressively upfield, that looks like he's doing a great job in pass protection, no, you don't take that guy high. You know, you don't take that guy high. So I think an off- I would take an offensive lineman unless they're clear-cut. Like, again, a Gabe Jackson is one that I would have taken high. Tyler Lawson, who's the backup center for the uh, Carolina Panthers, I would have taken high. Travis Frederick, I didn't mind taking in the first quarter, uh, first round. You, you know, first of all, guards in a guard is the most important parts of the offensive line. Any quarterback worth his salt can step up and evade pressure coming from the outside, but you can't step up into to the face of pressure if it's coming from the interior. Which is why your guard center guard has to be excellent. That's the most important part of the offensive line. Hate to break it down to you guys like that, but again. You've been misled. You've been disillusioned, been disenfranchised, been led astray by analysts out there or fanalists out there. We'll get to to, to fanalists in a minute. Uh, But I think the development of the offensive lineman is is the only development that that takes place when you get to the National Football League. Um, And that's where I think the NFL has to get better and they have to do things. That's why this 90-man roster and allowing those guys more reps 
against NFL caliber talent, it's a great thing. But anybody else, and you see people all the time talking about, oh, well, so-and-so player, quarterback A is going to make a jump in year two because uh, that's the development. Uh, you know, if quarterback A stunk in year one, it's, it, he's probably going to stink in year two and in year three and in year four. And if you're Blaine Gabbard, year seven. I can't believe Blaine Gabbard is nine and 31 as a starter. And people talk about his signing as it is a, as if it's a good thing. What the hell does nine and 21? Well, you know, quarterback wins are not a stat Emory. No, 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 no. They're not a stat. Nine and 21. That means uh, nine and 31. I'm sorry. That means with Blaine Gabbard starting as your quarterback, you are more than likely to lose that game. Oh, but quarterback wins is not a stat. The quarterback handles the f- football every play. And, oh, all you need is a run game in that defense, boy. Look at Dak Prescott. <sighs> Prescott threw 23 touchdowns to only four intercepts and completed over 65% of his passes. Pass rating was damn near 100 and had five game-winning drives. You need the quarterback to win. If it was just based off running game and defense, and, you know, Dallas had that offensive line. Oh, my God, that offensive line. They had the same offensive line last year. Pretty decent running back in Darren McFadden, who had 1,000 yards, so the running game was working. The offensive line was there. Defense played complementary football, all of which led them to the fourth overall selection in the draft. Why? Because the fucking quarterback stunk. All of them. So, I got that off my chest. But the myth of the development. You don't develop as a the only again, the only place you develop as a pro is along the offensive line. Because you don't where else are you going to get that that test? You won't get that test in college uh, going up against uh you know, at most unless you're constantly pl- unless you play BYU every week as an offensive lineman, um I'm sorry, yeah, as an offensive lineman and even as a defensive lineman going up against BYU offensive line, you don't get that grown man strength until you get to the NFL. So that's why you see that development slow for offensive linemen and why it takes him a little bit longer in some cases to get up to speed and play at the the level in which you expected him to play when you drafted him. So that's the only position. That's why I'm not as high on taking offensive linemen high unless they clearly show the strength or movement skills of Pace, Ogden, Gabe Jackson, and those centers I talked about. So that's my thing on developing players in the NFL. Everywhere else, you kind of are what you are because it's a, it's based off athleticism, based off your actual football skill. And if you don't have the skill, it doesn't matter if you sit on a bench for a year and quote-unquote learn from someone in front of you, which is the dumbest shit I've ever heard, I've ever heard um, or whether or not you uh, get groomed in a system five years before you're ready to take the field and play. No, you just got five years older. Your skill still is what it is. So that's the thing about developing in the NFL and why I believe it's a myth. Only It should be only applied to the offensive line. But a lot of this information you get from analysts, or should I say fanalists, and this is the problem I see nowadays in the, I hate to sound like an old guy, man, where I'm getting on this soapbox, but this is the problem you see nowadays with fanalists. And to be honest, we are all fans of football. We all have our, we are, we all are fans of a certain team we grew up watching. But once you get into this business, whether it's as a, I mean, if you're, wanting to be a professional at it. You can be a a blogger and blog about your team and, and rant and rave, and that's fine. Um, but don't where the line has gotten blurred is that now you start to see more of these blogger fanalists start to write for outlets and be, be taken as credible uh, resources for information when that's the danger. Because a fanalist can never be impartial. They're going to always be a fan, which is why you can't you, you find yourself sometimes going back. Let's say, for instance, I put out a quarterback ranking. Right. And someone disagrees and they, they say, hey, I disagree with this particular ranking that you have of this quarterback. Uh, w- what makes you think that this quarterback is lower than this one? And I'll go into my typical analytical part where, you know, okay, quarterback A does this, 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 and this. 
quarterback D B doesn't do this, 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 and that. Um, quarterback A may, may slightly do this better, may do this slightly better. Quarterback B may do this slightly better than A. But when you're giving that anal- analytical debate or analytical information to a fanalist, nothing you say will change their mind because, oh, you don't know. This is the team. He's a leader. He's a man. He's a superman. Stuff like that, man. It's, so you have to scale back like, wait a minute. I'm arguing with a fan. And that's when you punt. Sometimes when you sometimes somebody hit me with a, a, a comment like, hey, man, you're wrong on this particular quarterback or this particular player. And I instantly look at the bio. And if it says, if your Avi is you in that team's jersey and you also are a writer for a website, no, I'm punting the ball on, on first down. I'm not talking. I'm not debating with no fan because that's like pissing the wind. You will never, ever get a good debate with the fanalists. And I've seen more fanalists now in writing, whether it be with online outlets, whether it be with newspapers. Sometimes you see fanalists start to bleed onto the television. Radio, we know, is is notorious for having fanless as hosts, and they have to be, I guess, because, you know, they are the local outlet for the team. And so you hear a lot of, we need to do this as Team A. We as Team B, like, no, you're not on the team. And I think that's the problem, too. A lot of a lot of the fanless can't be impartial. And, again, I grew up in New Orleans, diehard Saints fan growing up, and I'm talking about where I when, when the Saints used to come on, I had to watch the game solo. Only approved people could sit and watch the game with me. There was one other dude, and it was uh, my coaching buddy, Coach Jones, could sit there and watch the game because we're going to sit there and for three hours be silent, talk at halftime about the dumb shit that we just saw on the field, and then go back to watching the game. So, But once I started this in 2007, I had to take those biases and throw them out the window. And, you know, you find yourself seeing things clearer as – an unbiased, impartial, uh, unbiased, partial analyst as opposed to a fanalist. You know, I can say player A is struggling reading the defenses and is a little bit hesitant in throwing the football, throwing with anticipation. His accuracy has to improve a little bit on these particular throws. I can say that as an unbiased analyst. The fanalist will see those comments or hear those comments and say, oh, well, the 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 right tackle was out, so that's why, I mean, the, the you know, the, the kid played in, in where it was predominantly cold, but, it, you know, even though he played inside in the dome, uh, he has to get used to this mid-Atlantic trop, tropical uh, atmosphere. The receivers are all terrible. All these NFL receivers who we praised last year, who did great last year in the same offense, all are terrible. So, he needs new receivers. He needs a new offensive line. The right tackle was out. You got to understand it takes time to develop quarterbacks. Despite trading all those picks up to get this quarterback. All the excuses come out there, right? But that's because you're arguing with a fanalist. The objective analyst, how it should be, can see all of those things as fact because it's out there on film. And there's no vested interest. Interest. The only vested interest I have in in watching these these games and giving takes on player B or player A, I just want to see good football, and I want to see good productive football. And I think it's a shame when you don't get that. You know, people will fanalists will spend hella high water telling you that the reason why you know player A. Let's take Ryan Tannehill for example, right? You know, I, I was on record, and that's why I love doing video because the video is still out there and you can go watch it. I had Ryan Tannehill great as a third-round prospect. Same with Blake Bortles. That's why I, credit to Jaguars fans for sniffing out that BS early. Jags fans caught on to Bortles' BS and was like, you know what? He trash. We need a new quarterback, right? Dolphins fans still are in this, well, you know, Tannehill. Here's the thing. About And I've talked about this before, but I'm going to bring it up again. Here's the thing with Tannehill. 
He played at Texas A&M. He was a former wide receiver turned quarterback. Or quarterback turned wide receiver turned back quarterback, right? They they hyped him up. They. We're going to get to they in a minute. They hyped him up to be better than uh, who came out that year? Oh, Andrew Luck and RG3. And Super Bowl winning champion Russell Wilson. Uh, and Super Bowl participant. No, that was, the, that was the other year. But Super Bowl winning champion Russell Wilson, right? Um Two-time Super Bowl appearing quarterback, Russell Wilson. Uh, so Tannehill comes out of Texas A&M. And the best way to make the transition easier for a quarterback that they de- uh, deem to be a franchise guy or may need a little bit of development, bring in his head coach and make him the offensive coordinator who was a master at calling plays. So they bring in the head coach and make him the offensive coordinator. So now he has comfort when he struggles doing the same struggles he did at Texas A&M, afraid of pressure. You can't coach the scariness out of a player, number one, but afraid of pressure. So it's, oh, well, you know, the, the, you know he's a rookie. He's going to, that's year one. He was a rookie. Year two, well, you know, the, he, you know, he needs weapons. He needs help and weapons. Year three, the offensive coordinator, play calling sucks. So wait a minute. They brought in the, the same dude that coached him at college that made him be, quote, unquote, the guy. And all of a sudden, the play calling sucks, and the coach is not developing, so they fire him. They fire the quarterback's coach. They've then fired a head coach in year four because they're not progressing because he needs help and weapons. Year five now, they barely make the play. They make the playoffs only because the dude gets hurt and only because they rely on the running game. That is the whole irony of the situation. Tannehill was 8-5 and five as a starter last year. The tide started to turn last season when they decide to take the ball out of Tannehill's hands and put it in the belly of Jay Ajayi in the running game. They ran all over Pittsburgh. They ran all over a bunch of defenses. And they played complementary football with the passing game, which worked. Dolphins always had talent, always had receivers, always had weapons in the backfield. Then Tannehill gets hurt and need the backup to step in and carry them to the playoffs, and he did. Then he got his equipment knocked off in that playoff game and was afraid to throw another pass. And if you saw that hit, I don't blame him because they knocked the numbers off the back of his jerseys. I've never seen someone get hit that hard. And I've watched the entire Byron Leftwich career, and he was the only other. Byron Leftwich, uh, DeAndre Francois, and Matt Moore, the only quarterbacks I've ever seen get hit like that. Francois get hits like that every game. It seems like he don't get starts getting good until he gets knocked out. And once he gets knocked out, then he's ready to go. Leftwich got hit hard every time he tried to get outside the pocket. It was hilarious. But that, that's the excuse of the fanalists. Well, they made five years of excuses for Tannehill and not just saying, like, you know what, maybe he isn't that good. Maybe he's average. And there's nothing wrong with being average. Just stop trying to make him Dan Marino and play complimentary football, and you can have an 8-5 and five record like they did this year. So, again, but when you're trying to be not, you know what I'm saying, and, and I've, said, I've said this for five years running now with Tannehill, and some Dolphins fans are starting to get it, but some fanalists still think Tannehill is Dan Marino and needs help and weapons. Oh, my God. Like So a player needs – it's funny when they talk about Player needs help and weapons. Um, so you need, he needs a Pro Bowl team just to be decent, while another guy supposed to make everybody around him better. How stupid that – you can't talk out both sides of your mouth. Yet some do. But that's the problem with talking with fanless because, again, they're irrational. They don't see what, what everybody else sees. They see what they want to see. They're sitting there probably writing an article or doing a show or, you know, talking to someone with – that team's jersey on. How can you take that person seriously trying to tell you about objectively about their team when they're wearing the jersey? It's not going to happen. So when you have fanalists that are now taking over, and, and, and I get it, you want to get more fans involved, they're going to follow the team probably closer than um, any other, let's say, national outlet or regional outlet or mid-major outlet, but the problem is they won't follow it closely with an unbiased eye. And they're putting that biased information out there um, to the masses, and people that aren't as sophisticated to pick up on it 
just will read it and take it as fact. Like I saw an article today from a fanalist that put out there that Carson Wentz, you know, uh, his mechanics improved and they had a slow motion video. But here's the thing. Carson Wentz's problems last year had nothing to do with his mechanics. That's what people don't understand. That's like the whole Blake Bortles fixed his mechanics in the offseason. That has nothing to do with why he can't play ball. That has nothing to do with why he struggles. How you throw a football has nothing to do with you actually reading the defense. Phillip Rivers throws a football from his hip like he's pitching rocks across the lake. That has nothing to do with how you are as a quarterback. How you throw is how you throw. And that's the whole thing about the perception versus the reality of how people view quarterbacks. It's just amazing because, again, you'll see a quarterback struggle like uh, Jared Goff. And you'll say, oh, he needs help and weapons, man. He needs help. Tannehill played mediocre. Oh, he, he needs help. Wentz played up and down as a rookie. I think a lot of people with the whole Carson Wentz thing, it played out exactly how I said it was going to play out in his scouting report video. But I think a lot of people just focused on the first three games, in which it was still a lot of what he did throughout the course of the season. Um, and here's what I said. He's going to do great on the killer C's, which are your curls, your comebacks, your crossers. He's going to do great on your killer S's, which is your seam throws your slants, your speed outs. He hits those in the sleep. It's everything else which will require him to go more intermediate to deep down the field is where he's going to struggle. Fanalists heard that and said, oh, my God, you hate Carson Wentz. Like, no, dude, I just said he he can do great on the short to intermediate passes or short to close to intermediate passes. Intermediate to deep down the field is where he's going to struggle, which he did last year. But now, fanalists have flooded the markets and said that, uh, you know, he needs help and weapons because the team suck. Well, it was, it was interesting because prior to Carson Wentz, the offense was okay. They went 7-9. They add Carson Wentz, same weapons, slightly different offensive approach as far as passing game is concerned. Offense didn't look bad. They went 7-9. They actually had a chance to win a lot of games, just like they did in 2015. But inconsistently at the quarterback position. But what the people saw in the first three games with Carson Wentz was a lot of short stuff, getting the ball out to the screens on with, with Darren Sproles, you know, which is smart, throwing a lot of tunnel screens, a lot of short passes, playing complimentary football, which eased Wentz into a groove. And had they stuck with that that you know, formula, they probably would have had more success. But the only problem with that is that once defenses week four figured out that they were only throwing short passes, they started to play closer to the line of scrimmage. They started to throw off the timing of the passing game, force Wentz to hold the ball and actually read coverage and make anticipatory throws, which he couldn't, which he didn't do on film at North Dakota State, which led to him now starting to throw interceptions. Now starting to panic in the pocket and be inaccurate. It's not because he threw differently or his elbow was low and, uh, well, you know, the, the offense, they asked him to do so much and, you know, they don't have any weapons. Aguilar is is out there with no hands. I thought y'all loved Aguilar last year when he was drafted in the first round of the USC. When I told y'all last year he was more inclined to be a third wide receiver and was a third-round graded prospect. But what the hell do I know as an unbiased analyst? However... This year, if they don't try to make Carson Wentz, Ron Jaworski, or Randall Cunningham, they can get to nine or even ten wins. They have a lot of talent up front. Their offensive line is good. I mean, their offensive line is not as bad as people made it out to be, number one. They have three great tight ends. They have depth in the backfield galore. They have good wide receivers. I don't know why they think Torrey Smith is a deep threat. Let me give you guys a news flash. Just because you're fast doesn't make you a deep threat. Just because you're tall doesn't make you Randy Moss. What makes you a deep threat is your ability to track and go up and catch a football. Torrey Smith is okay as a quote-unquote deep threat. 
he's slightly better as a deep threat than Ted Ginn. But if we're talking deep threat, I'll take Antonio Brown over Torrey Smith as more of a deep threat. Deshaun Jackson is more of a deep threat than uh, Stephen Hill was. He's more Randy Moss than Stephen Hill was. You know what I'm saying? So people focus on the wrong things, but I'm, I'm tired of telling you guys to, to you know, listen to football gameplay because we got you guys covered. But now all of a sudden, you know, you have all these ancillary things around Wentz or ancillary things around, you know, Jared Goff and all those things. And people just automatically assume that they're going to be great. They just know. Like, yeah, year two, they're going to be great. They got these guys. They're good. But the jury's still out on Dak Prescott. What the fuck is that? I mean, what more does dude had to do? And if it wasn't for the greatest, most accurate pass in forward pass history, they beat Green Bay. That throw by Aaron Rodgers, find me a better pass. That throw was the best throw in life. You can't throw hands better than you can throw that football Aaron Rodgers threw to Jared Cook to knock off the Cowboys. But keep in mind, look in that game. Dak Prescott brought that team back and put what looked to be the game-winning touchdown. So, I don't know, man. And, again, Oh, you just know Wentz is going to be great, and he's the star of the future for the Eagles. Uh, but Russell Wilson still got to prove himself, and this dude made two Super Bowls. Kaepernick, who is trying, who went took a visit to Seattle. Who knows if he even went to the Seahawks? He probably went up there to get some coffee. But so he goes to Seattle, and people are now like, "Oh well, um, it's a great fit." Of course, it's a great fit because you want to stockpile all black quarterbacks in one spot. You know, I'm pretty sure Buffalo is a great fit. I'm pretty sure uh, Carolina is a great fit. You know, pretty sure. Uh, what's another one? Dallas is a great fit. Seattle, you already, you already know it is a great fit. But Kaepernick is a great fit to me in Jacksonville. Jacksonville will go to the playoffs if they add Kaepernick easily. Easily. You know, people are saying he's a great fit in Seattle because he won't beat out Car- uh, um, Russell Wilson and he won't play. How is that a great fit? If you think he can play and be a starter, how is that a great damn fit? When you can, How can you sit there with a straight face, look at San Francisco's depth chart, look at the depth chart of the Jets, look at the depth chart of of Denver, and again, we tried to tell people last year that Paxton Lynch wasn't that guy, but people still listening to, I don't, I don't know. I don't know what qualifies someone to have uh, the the analyst hat on. We could be wrong on prospects, but you can't be that wrong on prospects. You see what I'm saying? Like, if he can't beat out Trevor Simeon, who's, who's like – Basic, out-the-pack quarterback. You know, like your standard basic quarterback. Like the epitome of average. He's the 60 overall. If your first-round quarterback can't beat out Simeon, that's a problem. But he should have been picked in the first round anyway, and it was evident on film. Oh, my. Let me stay on topic. Colin Kaepernick, right? So, people say Seattle is a great fit because he won't have to play. Why? How? How was that the great fit? How is that the best fit? Oh, because they have a, a mobile quarterback, even though they don't play the same style of game. I, I, you, you know what I'm saying? It makes no sense. And shout out to that 2011 class, man, because only two quarterbacks out that class have been to uh, Super Bowls: Cam Newton and Colin Kaepernick. But let's keep giving Josh McCown jobs. Let's keep saying Ryan Fitzpatrick is a great fit wherever he is, despite throwing 78 interceptions in the last five games of his of his playing career. Let's look at that 49ers. What, here's my other favorite thing, bridge quarterback. What, please define the bridge quarterback for me and what attributes do you need to be the bridge quarterback because it sounds like Josh McCown and Brian Hoyer are, are your, your best Bridge quarterbacks in history. They have all of the traits to be bridge quarterbacks. 
just terrible enough to have 11 men on the field and not say, you know what, let's just put 10 out there and see how it goes. Just snap it right to the running back and let's just see what we can do. You know, Kaepernick could re-sign with San, San Francisco and be a starter and be the best player on the roster. Again, I just don't understand that, man. It's, it's, but that's the perception versus the reality. The reality, reality, reality is that a lot of people uh, don't want to admit their biases towards certain quarterbacks. People need heroes, man. They love the way certain quarterbacks look. And, it's, uh, again, it's why people have a problem with women bosses. In their minds, they think, like, well, my boss is supposed to be a man that kind of looks like uh, the guy from the Enterprise commercials. You know what I'm saying? They can't grasp the fact that bosses come in all different shapes, sizes, and, and genders. Just like the quarterback position. They want everybody to be 6'5", 240, and look like Josh McCown. Strong jaw muscles. It, it doesn't work like that. Quarterbacks come in all different sizes. And as a matter of fact, I'm glad I brought that up because I was reading some stuff last night. I'm pulling this book out right here. The Split Line T offense by Jake Gaither, one of the greatest quarter uh, coaches in football history, coached at Florida A&M. Here's his thoughts, and this is back in 1965, y'all. I'm sorry, 1963. Here's his thoughts on the quarterback position, and this is from the split line offense, which is a T formation, right? Attributes of a passer. The passer should master the exchange from center, execute the handoff, and be able to pass while moving to the right and to the left. These fundamentals are practiced each practice session, and the passer should be capable of executing them when he is under physical attack and when the weather conditions are unfavorable, i.e., your quarterback just can't be a bitch. The passer has a more difficult job than a pitcher on a baseball team. Although the pressures are similar for both, the football player has to throw on the move while his attackers are pursuing him. Again, don't be a bitch. He must throw over the heads of the defenders and in front of the defenders, between defenders, and to the side of defenders. Again, you got to be able to throw from all sorts of platforms, so not one way of throwing is the key. Some authority, here's the, here's the kicker. I said all that to say this. Some authorities feel that the best passers are tall. However, we obtained desirable results with a short passer who had a 60% completion average. This is, in our opinion, due to the strength of his arm and his hands or length of his fingers. That's interesting right there, the length of a guy's fingers. But this was written by head coach Jake Gaither, one of the great coaches in college football history at Florida A&M back in 1963. Yeah, 19, hold up. 1963. And again, this is the split line offense. So if you can find this book online, it's one of the classics. Teaches you all about the T formation. But notice what he said about the quarterback position. In so many 1963, see, if this book was written today, it basically say, hey, man, you can complete passes with anybody. Just don't be a bitch. Basically, don't be afraid of pressure. And that's all you really need. Give me the quarterback that's not, I'll take the quarterback that's, that may not be as physically talented as long as he's not afraid of pressure. Right? And that's the whole perception versus reality. I hate how people sit there and joke about Joe Flacco, but Joe Flacco is not a bad quarterback. But the perception is that he's bad. But this is a guy that has had a lot of success in the NFL. What has been bad in Joe Flacco's defense is the Ravens' inability to find, to draft good talent at receiver. I mean, this is a guy that has been to a Super Bowl, won a Super Bowl, arguably should have been the two because of that that quote-unquote drop uh, in the AFC Championship game against New England. Compiled an 83-55 and 55 record, only one losing season as a starter, which was in 2015. But his teams, for the most part, have finished 8-8 eight and eight or better. Find someone that is as consistent as Joe Flacco, and I'll show you a good quarterback. So I don't understand why people think he is a bad quarterback. More touchdowns than interceptions. A lot of that because he spent time trying to throw the football to Mike Wallace and Torrey Smith. You know, so 
and shout out to Tory Smith too. He he's a good dude, you know what I'm saying? And he tries hard. He definitely got better as he, you know, was able to to, you know, make things happen in the pros. In the playoffs, Flacco has a 10 and 5 record. 25 touchdowns, 10 interceptions in the playoffs. But people will lead you to believe that Flacco is a bad quarterback. Flacco, if you put him with a receiver that's worth the salt, they're going to do fine. Oh, where's that defense? Well, yeah, the defense could be good, and the quarterback could still suck. And that would lead you to a 7-9 record. We saw Seattle be 7-9 with, with that defense two years prior to getting Russell Wilson. And then instantly they go to the divisional round of the playoffs. Then the next year they win the Super Bowl. And then the following year after that, they go to another Super Bowl and they should have won. All with a great defense. Joe Flacco can play. But the perception is that he's bad. Another guy that gets a lot of unnecessary flack is Andy Dalton. I don't understand why people hate Andy Dalton. Andy Dalton can play. Why? Because according to Jake Gaither, he's not a bitch. He's not afraid of pressure. Now, granted, he does have to pick up his play in the playoffs. Now, and it's sad because I thought last, uh, what, 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 2015, when they made the playoffs, he was playing MVP-level ball and got hurt. That was the year that he was going to finally overcome uh, and, and win the playoff game, which is so unfortunate. You know what I'm saying? And so, but you have a guy with 56 and 35 as a starter. One losing season was last year, 6-9 and nine and 1. More touchdowns and interceptions. The interception number has gone down uh, over the last three seasons. Two-time, three-time Pro Bowler. Since he's been there, they've made the playoffs, what, five times? Out of six years? This is the seventh year? So, bad quarterbacks don't lead their team to the playoffs. So, I don't get why the perception is Andy Dalton is bad. Tim Tebow may not be the most polished passer, may not be the most orthodox of throwers, but we do know Tim Tebow wasn't a bitch in the pocket, right? One and one in the playoffs, thrilling playoff victory on a strike. More touchdowns and interceptions. And it's, here's the thing, and I think Tim Tebow got railroaded a lot too. I think with him, I've never seen – here's here's how the perception versus the reality. The perception was that he couldn't throw. Here's the reality. We watched Tim Tebow during that 2011 season – get hamstrung by play calling, which was so unfortunate, it made me mad to watch. You had Tim Tebow you, against the Kansas City Chiefs. In the first half, they called three passing plays. How are you supposed to get into a groove or a rhythm as a passer throwing the ball three times in the first half? So now when you need to throw the football, every pass is, is going to be, overly analyzed or overly, you know, it's going to be more important. And in that same game, despite the offensive coordinator and the head coach conspiring to make him look bad, he threw the game winning touchdown on a strike to Eric Decker down the seam. But again, he can't play. Right? Perception versus reality. Dalton is a good quarterback. Tim Tebow is a good quarterback, albeit different. Right? So, when you look at, let's say, let's just look at leaders from the past season, this season, you know, 2016 stats, right? Passing. Breeze, good quarterback. Flacco, good quarterback. Rodgers, good quarterback. Manning, despite his flaws, good quarterback. Stafford, Rivers, Winston, Dalton, Carr, Wilson, Luck. Matt Ryan, Cam Newton, Roethlisberger, Prescott, Alex Smith. There's some good quarterbacks in this league, right? The quarterbacks that you want to – now, here's the, here's the interesting, interesting debate. Is Kirk Cousins a good quarterback? I think so. Only issue is – his interceptions, which are low, 
but they come at a costly. He throw he throws pick sixes. He throws the worst type of interceptions at the worst time. You know, but is a good quarterback. I think you can get to Alex Smith level with Kirk Cousins. So I'm not going to knock Kirk Cousins and what he's doing. is actually playing it smart. Franchise me every year. Playing it smart. You know, Carson Palmer was a good quarterback. He's just not the, the best under pressure. And that shows. And he has lost, he has a lot of, you know, losing on his resume. But he is a good quarterback. And I think, and I, I honestly believe, Carson Palmer, we that injury in the playoffs completely changed his outlook as far as throwing the football. You know, because he was he was he ran a four five in a forty yard dash. He wasn't afraid to get outside, and make things happen with his legs. Once that knee injury happened in the playoffs, we saw a totally different Carson Palmer. He became a little bit shell shocked. So I still like Carson Palmer. So the perception is that the NFL is dying of quarterback needy teams. No, there's a lot of good quarterbacks in the NFL. It's just that the bad ones tend to get more opportunities to prove that they're bad. The NFL can solve this problem right away by giving guys that can actually play opportunities. They don't have to be 6'5". Give guys that can play the position chances to play the position. And there you have it. So perception versus reality. And that's all because of the herd mentality. Which is another problem, you know. It's funny because you you see all the people talk about bullying online, and oh, you know, you shouldn't bully, and da 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 da. Bullying is bad until everybody wants to get these jokes off, right? Bullying, bullying. And they talk about Lavar Ball being a big bully, blah 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 blah. The next day, or a week later. Same people out here getting these jokes off on Kelvin Benjamin and his being overweight to the point where now they're saying, oh, he looks like Queen Latifah. <laughs> so now you are clowning Calvin Benjamin. You're clowning Queen Latifah saying she looks like a man. You're clowning your weight shaming or fat shaming Calvin Benjamin. But just last week you talked about LeVar Ball being a bully. Now how'd that go? Make that make sense for me. But that's the herd mentality. One person makes fun of, of him running a half-speed route. Who knows what the route was supposed to do? You And that's, again, that ties back into the fanalist part of it because now you have some people that are, are trying to get these jokes off in media for the likes and retweets out there videotaping practice, misinterpreting what's going on just to get these jokes off. And the herd mentality leads people to go ahead and make fun of Calvin Benjamin. Maybe he's going through something that he has struggled to keep his weight down. We don't know if this dude's depressed. And this OTAs, he still has time to drop weight. If people was to talk to him, they'd probably get a deeper answer on what's going on than just chalking it up to him being fat, lazy, and looking like Queen Latifah from Set It Off. You know what I'm saying? So you can't be like that. You, you see the herd mentality with people making fun of uh, players, uh, talking about prospects, if they all of a sudden, and this was funny, 2015, you heard, oh, this quarterback class is going to be great because you got Deshaun Watson, Kaiser looks good, um, and and that was the that was mainly the two. Everybody should try to get Watson right, and then midway through the season, people said people throw out the carrot, somebody throw out the carrot, Trubisky. No one watches North Carolina football, by the way. But all of a sudden, they already these are the same people that also know that, yeah, you got to take Trubisky number one. He's the clear-cut best. And you'd be like, well, what did he do last year? <laughs> Shit, I don't know. <laughs> but you got to take him number one. Herd mentality. They done talked themselves into thinking that Trubisky is a better quarterback than Watson, Mahomes, or Kaiser. That is, you know, mind-blowing because somebody said it. Herd mentality, afraid to stand out on your own two feet. So as long as people continue to be fanless, continue to, to buy into perception versus reality, continue to have that herd mentality, you see people clowning Ryan Grixon as if he didn't have solid drafts with the Colts. 
The only problem with the Colts is that Luck kept getting hurt. And people talk about the offensive line was a problem. Like, listen, man, here's the thing. A lot of times you can get yourself sacked and get yourself in, and here's the difference between um let's say Steve Young or Steve Young, Andrew Luck, Michael Vick, Vince Young. Michael Vick, Andrew Luck are reckless runners. So they get hit. They take hits. Cam Newton, reckless runner, takes hits. Vince Young Steve Young, Russell Wilson, they don't take hits. They run under control. So, yes, they're scrambling, rambling all over the field, but they don't take hits. They don't take direct shots. Luck, Newton, Vic took direct shots. So, Luck, a lot of times, gets himself hurt. And if you have a, a Patrick offensive line, you can, and if you're an athlete like Luck is, you can get yourself out of a lot of trouble. So, I wouldn't necessarily knock Grixon for that. He made a bad trade with Trent Richardson, but I understand why he did it. They felt as though that team was just a running back away, and Richardson was a guy that that you wanted to feed the ball to, but they tried to make him be a a spot player, come in, get two carries, come out and throw the football five. No, you you can't do that with him. And that led to knee problems, weight gain, things like that, and it fell out of favor, and he ended up being ineffective. So, yes, Grixon Grixon made some bad trades, picks but to say that he is terrible in a role that he has had success in he was named executive of the, of the year you know and clowning the browns for for doing it i don't i don't see that issue you, you know what i'm saying and i i just think that people are quick to jump and follow the herd i mean he signed he drafted andrew luck first thing he does finds andrew luck's Favorite target in college, his tight end. Brings in Kobe Fleener. Drafts another tight end in Dwayne Allen. Drafts T.Y. Hilton. I mean, what can we what can we say, right? And if the offensive line is that bad, you won't be able to put up as good of a stats that Luck has had, done, has had his entire career. Luck is a good quarterback. Luck has to be a little bit more careful with the football, and that'll happen in time. But ever since Luck has been the Sands last year, the last two years because they've been hurt, but they made the playoffs and they will continue to make the playoffs because they have a guy that's not afraid of pressure. Just has to protect the football, you know, and that's going to be key. But avoid the herd mentality. Stop being a fanalist. Understand that offensive line is probably the one place where development takes place in the NFL. Colin Kaepernick should be in Jacksonville or with the Giants, but I think he should be more so in Jacksonville because that team is ready to win now. And always focus on reality. Re, la, 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 la. Always focus on reality more so than perception because reality is the truth. Perception is left up to the person providing the information. So, again, follow me on Twitter at FBall Game Plan. Follow me on Facebook, Emory Hunt, or at Football Game Plan. Um, be sure to subscribe to us on iTunes and check out anything that we got going on our YouTube channel at YouTube.com slash Football Game Plan. I'm Emory Hunt, and that was episode 14 of Direct Snap.